Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hey, this is Anna David. You're listening to Recover Girl. It's a podcast all about addiction, recovery, creativity, whatnot. My cat just jumped in. Um, hi, Lily. I'm terribly excited about the guests that I have today. I'm just going right into it. By the way, you can get this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. You know that because you're already listening. If you like this podcast, please review it and rate it and all of that stuff. And you can find out more about me by going to AnnaDavid.com. Now let's talk about our guest. And I'm not talking about my cat, Lily. <laughs> I'm talking about Freddie Negretti. God, that is fun to say. I, I guess. World famous tattoo artist sitting right here on my couch with my cat. Lucky me. Um, he has a memoir uh, that is, it came out last year? Yeah. And it's called Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. And um, I just got it signed by him. I'm not going to tell you what it says. Uh, but, Freddie, thank you so much for coming here to do this. My pleasure. You have, um, you've had quite a long journey here. Yes. For people who don't know, let's just walk them through. Okay. Uh, so how did it all start? You, uh, you didn't expect to be a guy sitting here sober talking on a recovery podcast. I think it's safe to say. No, but it doesn't surprise me. I, I've been sober now, um, 11 years and you know, I have, uh, uh, I'm so sorry. I literally, my cat just ran outside. I'm so sorry. Hang on one second. Hi, we're we're back. Uh, cat saved. You've been sober eleven years. Yeah, and um, and you know, there's of course a portion of my book about my recovery journey, and you know, I I work uh, at a couple of uh, treatment centers, uh, Beit Shuva and ARC, <clears throat> uh, leading groups for mm-hmm. young people. So it doesn't surprise you that that's how your life has ended up. Oh, it doesn't surprise me that I'm right here talking to you. <laughs> right, because that's your day-to-day. But if you would go back to your youth, is this ever what you expected? Uh, no, actually. I expected to um, probably just spend the rest of my life in prison. Right. So, um, I mean, everything took a turn. And it was because of my prison experience that my life changed. Not because I decided to do good and, you know, not go to prison anymore, but because of uh, learning how to tattoo in there. Yeah. And then doing it on the streets, my apartment, and just uh, being at the right place in the right time, meeting the right people. Uh, I ended up 
uh, being the first like Chicano gangster guy to be a professional tattoo artist and introduce the prison style of tattooing to the prof- you know the professional. Will you explain what the prison style tattoo is? Well, uh, <clears throat> prison uh, style tattooing it it comes from uh, the. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I mean. Um, how dare you interrupt this most <laughs> professional experience? Um, you know, I it really comes from uh, my Chicano experience, and um, and uh, being in a gang and all that stuff. Uh, of course, getting in trouble and ending up in prison. But there was a we we're really interested in art, you know, graffiti. Mm-hmm. And we had images that were very important to us, and tattoos were a norm. While in prison, you know, that it's very, you know, the ingenuity in there, you know, um, you know, they invented these little tattoo machines, yeah, and and out of cassette motors, and <clears throat> so we started doing like really detail, detailed and beautiful tattoos. Uh, the only other kind of tattooing at the time that was out there was the professional traditional style, which was a thick line and filled in with color, which was kind of cartoony. Yeah. <clears throat> so we wanted our style to be more realistic. Yeah. And uh, so we wanted really thin lines. And of course, we were in prison, so we didn't have color. We had to home- make our ink homemade. So, um, so. We did everything in black and gray. Now, so when you say you you made a tattoo gun out of a cassette tape, is yeah. that how that works? Did you, but you didn't invent that. That was already happening in prisons. No, but I helped perfect it. Really? I think. Yeah. So what happens? You you take a cassette. Uh, you bust it open. Bust it open. And get the motor out. Yeah. And then uh, it's a little rotary motor. Yeah. And and so with. A toothbrush and big pens, tape, paper clip, you know, and uh, sewing needles or sharpened guitar string. We would make uh, these little tattoo machines. God, that's amazing. That worked really good. You know what's amazing is that based off that design, you know, like prison tattooing has influenced professional tattooing right. incredibly. And uh, one of the ways... You know, uh, the tattoo machine has always been like a coil machine that works off electricity, kind of like uh, the old school bell. Mm-hmm. You know, the ring. If you were to break it open, you'd find like a tattoo machine-looking thing in there. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, uh, but the all the ingenuity and uh, these manufacturers have taken that prison design of tattoo machine and made a whole. And they keep getting better every day, but made a whole industry off of rotary tattoo machines. So, so you were always an artist. You just, as a kid, you drew. Yeah. And even though that seems like a kind of, you know, not that tough a thing to do, it kind of was because of graffiti art, right? Yeah, definitely because of graffiti art, and also because of, uh, in in my subculture, you know, the Chicano gangster thing. You know, we were real interested in artistic things, and we're always putting things down on paper, like girls and charras and crosses and ribbons and roses and things like that. But you wouldn't 
I wouldn't think that that would be part of the Chicano gang culture, <laughs> you know, but it is. It is very much so. So so let's talk about, so, so you joined a gang when you were how old? 12. When you were 12. And, and it was made serious camaraderie, right? Yeah. So not unlike the sort of uh, camaraderie of recovery, you found a group of people that you really connected with. Right. And drugs and drinking, that was a huge part of being in a gang. Uh, when you're, you know, when you're a kid in the gang, pretty much just drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> um, I remember... Um, you know, because you have all these different age groups. Yeah. I mean, the gang that I'm from was was actually formed in the early 30s. Jesus, yeah. So, so you, you know, in the neighborhood, you would see all these different age groups, and everybody would come together and hang out on the corner and stuff like that, and some of the guys would be... They didn't really like the younger guys hanging around that much. Yeah. We had it tough, but you could have 15, 16-year-olds hanging around with 30, 40 year old guys. But I remember when I was young in the gang and I used to see all the older guys were heroin addicts, like all of them. Mm-hmm. And they weren't interested in, in you know, riding, you know, and uh, gang banging and anything like that. In fact, they would fraternize with the enemy and everything, you know, because their sole thing was heroin. So I remember looking at that saying, that sucks. I hated heroin, you know. And the addicts, you know, I I didn't trip on that. But drinking and, you know. And then uh, when I was a kid, other things were around like barbiturates, mm-hmm. you know, red devils and true and all, rainbows. Mm-hmm. Anything that would get you down, drunk. Yeah, yeah. Loaded, loaded, so to say. Of course, I ended up becoming a heroin addict just like all the older guys, so. So w- how did that happen exactly? Just one day, it just... Uh, you know, there was uh, these... Uh, so I was uh, maybe 16 or 17, and uh, <clears throat> I was kind of out on the streets, so I had to rely on, uh, you know, um, illegal activity like burglaries and boosting, stealing, shoplifting. <clears throat> Anyways, so one of my friends had a... This, uh, his sister was with this older guy that was from 18th Street. <clears throat> and um, and my homeboy wanted to do it, and he was saying, yeah, he would give us some, you know, and uh, and he showed us how to boost and steal and make money. But he would shoot us up with heroin. What's boosting? Stealing. Oh, okay. Uh, boosting is, uh, yeah, going to, uh, like, uh, shoplifting. Oh, okay, okay. So especially... It was easy back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cameras <laughs> yeah. now, you can't. Yeah, no cameras, anything. no yeah. nothing. So we'd go out in there with our baggy yeah. khakis. Yeah. And then put like two, three pairs pairs of pants on, put the khakis over, and then just and just walk yeah. on out. Yep. Yeah. In the dressing room, you put the pants on and then walk out. And so that's and you just decided to try heroin. Yeah, I, I, I guess that it was kind of the peer pressure. This older guy was really tough, you know. So, and then. My my friend, my homeboy, whose sister was with him, just looked up to him, and he was like, come on, let's do it. Come mm. on, it'll feel good. Anyway, so I I remember doing it the first time, and I didn't really like it because I kept throwing up. Yeah. You shot it the first time? Yeah. Okay, and you kept throwing up, and you didn't like it, and yet you did it more. Uh, 
So I didn't do it more right away. Yeah. I did it a couple more times and uh, with the same experience. And um, so I never, I didn't become addicted to heroin until after I got out of prison and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And when did you start getting in trouble and going to prison? Uh, when I was really young. Yeah. Yeah, right away. So, you know, my, my parents went to prison when I was really young. Right. So. <clears throat> and, and your mom was from this, like, nice Jewish family. Yeah. Um, Jewish immigrants. Yeah. And, and so she met your dad and then. Um, right. My uh, There used to be a Jewish community in East L.A. in Boyle Heights. Yeah. And they were immigrants from Europe. And um, so the, the Hispanic community and the Jewish community there didn't really get along. Yeah. And the Jews eventually moved out. Yeah. But, you know, uh, the thing they hated the most is when their daughters, their Jewish daughters, would go with the Pachuco guys. Yeah. My dad was a Pachuco. My mom was a Jewish immigrant. Yeah. And so they both they both went away when you were a kid. Yeah. When I was two years old, they went to prison. And um, and how long did you spend in prison and all? Well, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe ten years or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I spent most of the most of my time in juvenile hall camps, mm -hmm. and then finally youth authority. I mean, I would get out and I'd be out a couple of months, and I'd get busted again. And you always made. I was terrible. You were bad. You were bad. Right, really bad. And are you really good now? That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you say? No. It sure seems people, like it. People trip out because, especially when they read my book, because they always say I'm such mild-mannered, nice guy. They can't imagine me being mean. Yeah, but that's always the case. I feel like we were just talking about Patrick O'Neill, yeah. you know, my friend who was bank robber and uh, you know he's the sweetest most mild-mannered guy ever it's the people that you know don't have the criminal past that you've got to watch out for. yeah um, i guess you got all of it out of your system but so you always kind of would get ahead sort of socially in those places because you could draw right yeah and people liked that that was a valued skill right and um so so especially in prison being able to draw and tattoo and be tough because yeah. they'll eat you alive in there. Yeah. If you were tough and you could draw and tattoo, then you had a good gig going. Were you the king of prison? I, I had a lot of things going on. Yeah. Yeah. And and so t let's talk about how you became this, um, you know, the, the famous tattoo artist that you are. So you, you perfect this, this art of prison tattooing. You get out. You start doing it. You worked with Ed Hardy. Yeah, so when I <clears throat> so when I got out, uh, you know, I immediately uh started tattooing out of my apartment and there was like a fire for it. People wanted tattoos. What year was this? Uh nineteen seventy six. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh everybody from the neighborhood wanted tattoos and when I got out I lived in Pico Rivera, which isn't too far from San Gabriel where I'm from. Mm -hmm. and um, But at the very same time, there was this guy, Good Time Charlie, and uh, he was uh, this guy from Kansas who was working at the Pike doing traditional tattoos. Mm -hmm. And um, him and this other guy, Jack Rudy, had this vision that if they opened up a tattoo shop in East L.A., that 
it'd be a, a great business, you know, because it was just ta- a tattoo shop on downtown, downtown LA, on Fifth and Main, and then you had the Pike where there was like those were the only ones. Yeah, those were the only wow. ones, and there was one on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. So, those were the only tattoo shops in the whole city, and everybody would go there. So they thought if they opened up in East LA, they'd make a killing. So, they did. They opened up. Sh- a shop in East LA, but they found that the people in East LA wanted something different. They didn't want uh, traditional tattoos. They wanted their tattoos to look like they were done in prison. Right. So the one guy, Jack Rudy, he was a really good artist and he grew up around Chicanos. So he kind of knew what they liked and he picked up on it right away. And uh, for Good Time Charlie, it was more like, oh, you know, hey, we're doing this. It's even easier. We're doing tattoos without the color like half the tattoo mm-hmm. but it's turned out to be a lot more than that and he realized it so meanwhile i was tattooing out of my apartment and um this guy jack rudy they called him Wero. i started people would come and show me hey look at this tattoo i got at this shop in east l.a and so i was shocked that there was just a tattoo shop down there trying to do what you were doing. our style yeah you know and uh so i would do the real thing and tell me, hey, go over there and show the, show them guys this, you know. So then uh, <clears throat> somebody came and told me, hey, Jack Rudy wants to talk to you. He wants to meet you. So, you know, I took some of my artwork and a couple of people that I tattooed down to Good Time Charlie's in East L.A. on Winter Boulevard. And <clears throat> when I met Jack, it was, he was really cool. But they had my designs, some of my prison designs on the wall. Right. And I was like, hey, yo, I drew that. And he's like, hey, everybody says that. <laughs> and I was going, I had the original artwork in my folder, you know? Yeah. So him and I got along real good. The other people at the shop, Charlie and the other uh, biker guys, and st- they, they they didn't give me, they didn't talk to me mm-hmm. or anything. Because uh, tattooing at the time was run by bikers, you know? And um, they, they weren't going to give a Chicano gangster guy a, a job at a tattoo shop. Mm-hmm. So they didn't offer me a job there or anything like that. But Good Time Charlie quit tattooing, and he sh- sold the shop to Ed Hardy. So a little bit about Ed Hardy, you know, he was a little bit more than just a brand, a yeah. shirt brand. Yeah. A lot of people don't know. A lot but, of people don't know. But uh, he was a master tattoo artist, very educated man, um, who introduced... Uh, Japanese style of tattooing to America Mm -hmm. and he published you know things in books he was his aim was to transform tattooing into a respectable art form Mm -hmm. because people would look at tattoos and say that's not art yeah you know nobody believed it was art and that that's something people would say and so he discovered what Jack and Charlie were doing in East LA and he was just amazed with it and when Charlie quit Ed didn't want to see it stop, so he bought the shop. Mm-hmm. And then Jack told Ed Hardy about me. Ed Hardy's not a biker. He's, like, an artist. Mm-hmm. So he goes, we got to get this guy in here. He could relate to these people, and he knows the work. So Ed Hardy gave me the job there. And um, where were you in terms of getting sober at that point? Didn't really think about it. Yeah, <laughs> active heroin addicts at the time. Uh, no, at that time, I was... Uh, um, I just got... I just drank occasional uh, and smoked a lot of weed and uh, once in a while some coolies. Some what? Uh, you know, PCP, super okay. cool. Okay. 
it's a cool cigarette dipped in in, in, in PCP, PCP juice. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> but I couldn't tattoo on that. Yeah. Like I like getting high and getting all we call it getting gumby. I like getting all gumby, but I couldn't tattoo or drive. It's really anything. dangerous to have one of those tattoo guns on PCP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I, I could. I realized I couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, but anyways, it wasn't until after I was tattooing for about a year, and then, and then I got married, you know, and uh, had my son, and then still had my homeboys. I lived in the neighborhood and stuff. Anyways, so. Um, I don't know what, I think I wanted to get high because I felt, oh, my life is so good, you know, and, yeah. and um, you know, being a gangster and now having, making good money and getting recognition, I had a car and a wife and a kid. I thought that um, getting high made it better. feel better. Yeah. 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 I seemed to enjoy it more when I got high, you know. You so. seemed to enjoy your life more when you got high? Yeah. Yeah, when did that change? Because clearly it uh, changed, or you would still be doing it, right? Right, right. Well, <clears throat> I mean, uh, then, you know, I, I went through some rough times. I tried methadone, you know, and I, so, and I got really strung out. But it was easy for me to keep my habit going because, you know, uh, tattooing, you make money every day. Yeah. So a heroin addict has to get high every day. Yeah. And that costs money. So either they got a good hustle, like maybe selling dope or something, or they have they go out and booze. Yeah. You know, make money every day to, to support their habit. But tattooing, you get paid cash every day. Plus, I did a little slinging on the side. You know, so I was keeping the habit going. What is slinging? I was selling dope. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, there's slinging ink, so slinging could be tattooing. See, or the, slinging. Vo- the vocab words I'm learning. Okay, so you could say slinging ink, and you're talking about tattooing. And I was slinging dope, So you were too. slinging ink and slinging. Yes, I was okay. slinging and okay. slinging. Yeah. I was double slinging. Double slinging. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> um, but eventually, you know, it took its toll. And then, plus, uh, I wasn't, I was still gangster, you know, and the whole being a player and cheating and partying and not being a good husband at yeah, all. Yeah. You know, and so breaking up, you know, my marriage breaking up and losing my house, all that stuff. So I really hit rock bottom. And, um, you know, I didn't, I never, the only thing I ever heard about recovery, I remember when I was in youth authority and, uh, these AA guys would come and talk yeah. to us. And we would just go for the donuts. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But we would, we'd make fun of them and stuff. And say, Hi, my name is Bob. I'm an alcoholic. And um, so I, it was really kind of, for us, it was totally new. So this is in the 70s. So I never really heard much about it apart from that. But um, at the time, there was like... Uh, these evangelical fundamentalist Christians Mm -hmm. and what they were doing was going into the worst neighborhoods. In fact, it was this guy, Nicky Cruz. He has a book called the cross and the switchblade. So, and, uh, this, uh, this pastor went to New York and, uh, he saved this gang member named Nicky Cruz and Nicky Cruz, 
started taking his the message to the streets, and he reached out to a guy named Sonny Argonzoni, who was a heroin addict. And Sonny Argonzoni, you know, his life changed and everything. And he started a church and came out to East L.A. It was called Victory Outreach. Mm-hmm. And um, they go right in the worst part, right in the heavy gang areas. But <clears throat> their appeal seemed to be really accepted by the drug addicts, mm-hmm. you know, um, because it's what helped me, too, you know. And, um, and a lot of, you know, I, I remember I'd be, I was at the tattoo shop and some of these guys that, you know, I did time with and that would come by the tattoo shop because we're in East L.A., you know, are like just hardcore. You know what I mean? Right. You you faint if you saw someone mm-hmm. <laughs> like really scary guys, you know, but they're my friends, you know. But so all of a sudden these really hardcore guys that I knew as killers were coming with, to the tattoo shop with bibles right talking about jesus and i was like yo what up you know like i didn't get it at first you know but their their message to me was uh was really clear you know like you're down your your life is a mess yeah you know the drugs are destroying you heroin's a killer you know it's just and uh, God can help you. Mm-hmm. You know, God can save you. He could change your life, mm-hmm. which is a real similar message to AA. Yeah. You know, so that was the appeal. You know. So, anyways, uh, you know, m- my wife and I had broken up. You know, under terrible circumstances, she like lost it and those crazy things. You know, and anyways. Uh, <clears throat> so I went with these guys to to their service mm-hmm. and then um and I went up and I accepted Jesus and all that and I felt something different, you know. What do you so, mean? What happened? <clears throat> you know, um I just felt like a peace and a joy come into me, mm. you know, when I made when I think it was the you know, like um What's it called? The spiritual experience. Yeah. What's it called? Uh, uh, Something awakening or the spiritual spi- awakening? Yeah, spiritual sure. awakening. Yeah, I had why that. not? Yeah, spiritual so, awakening. Just uh, one. A moment of clarity and a spiritual awakening. And was it a one-time intense thing, or is it? Yeah, it was a one-time, really, really intense thing, uh, to the point where, um, where, I didn't really even, and I had been strung out for a couple of years uh-huh. and um, I felt like God helped me through, uh, you know, I cold turkey. Yeah. And I really didn't get that sick. So you, you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. You yeah. were awash with peace. And did you never use again? No, this is a long time ago. Okay. So, <laughs> but it worked at the moment. It worked at the moment. So, but there was a lot of, a lot of heavy drama. So the, the the this Sonny Argonzoni and all these church people they were like oh you know this guy because I was uh, so famous with these uh, gangster guys you yeah. know all the ones that were members of that church everybody knew me yeah you know as a tattoo artist plus I was known before that as you know a hardcore gangster you know yeah. and all these guys you go to prison and you see all the same guys yeah yeah you know what I mean 
So anyways, um, so they they were like, uh, you know, tattooing's a sin. You gotta you gotta quit. Right. And I was like, oh God, you know, I quit tattooing. That was the toughest decision I ever made in my life. But I felt like I did it for God. You know, um, maybe I did it a little bit for pride because, you know, they they do this thing prophesying, mm-hmm. where somebody will say, tell you your future. Oh really? Yeah. And uh, somebody said they had a vision that I was going to be this great preacher, evangelist guy, and all that stuff. And it kind of appealed to my ego. My ego. Yeah. Yes. Who doesn't want to preach? And uh, and all those guys, you know, the thing is, all these gangsters, they'd come to Jesus, and there was only one vision, you know, was to be a preacher or an evangelist, you know. (laughs) And uh, they looked up to these guys, so everybody wanted to be a preacher, you know. So, <clears throat> anyways, um, then, you know, um, you know, so I, I jumped off into this and I was trying to be, you know, uh, do it right and live a holy life and all this stuff, you know. And then, you know, Sonny would always invite me to his house and stuff. And I felt like, I felt like he was up there saying one thing, but living another way. So, he had all these homes that were like treatment centers, you know? Uh-huh. But this is before all these treatment yeah, centers. Yeah, yeah, before today. And, and um, yeah. you know, and so they would take people in off the streets, drug addicts and everything, and put them in these homes. And it was real rigid, you know, like you had to be up at five and pray for an hour. And, right. You know, but it would it help people out. But he would have those, the guys from the home come. And, you know, uh, you know, I went to his house and, they're all around cleaning his house and doing his gardening. Right. And he had this big old house, you know. And, you know, I like during the service, he would take up like three offerings, you know. Mm-hmm. One at the beginning, one in the middle, and then one at the end. And he would keep it all? No, it was for the church, you know. Right, right. But, I mean, he was living well. Yeah, nice house. He, yeah. yeah. you Clean know, like, house, thanks to everybody cleaning. Big house, you yeah. know. like, And we're all poor people, you know, right. and all the... And I remember at times uh, him saying, you know, today God told me something that uh, instead, you know, because you're supposed to give 10% of your income. Yeah, tithing. Yeah, tithing. So he goes, but instead of giving 10%, God wants you to give 90% and keep 10 for yourself. <laughs> oh, my God. So, you know, I'm a rational person. So yeah. a lot of this stuff I would I would, I would be like, ah, you know, but I turn a blind eye and just, yeah. you know, so... Anyways, uh, so he wanted me to do, you know, my my trade in prison was uh, being in the print shop, you Mm -hmm. know. Anyways, so he was telling me he wanted me to do artwork, you know, for leaflets and things like that to pass out. And so, um, you know, so I was up for that. So I wanted to draw for God. I wanted to use my talent for God, you know. And uh, he was going, when when he saw my work and my ideas, he was like, oh, you're on, we're going to hire you full time. He goes, you know, we got this printing press downstairs, like an offset press, but it's broken. I go, oh, I I know how to deal with that. So in the basement of the church was this offset press. So I fixed it and got it running. Mm -hmm. So now they didn't have to send stuff out to get it printed, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was in that basement at an art table. I was drawing and printing every day, you know, and um, and I went back with my wife. So, you know, I had a family. Things were going well again. 
Well, not yet because ish. I didn't have any money yet. Okay. Ish. Yeah. 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 So, like a couple months went by, and I remember telling one of the elders, "Hey, um, you know, Sonny said that this was going to be a full time job, and you know, I I I need money, yeah. you know, to take care of my family." And he goes, "Oh, well, you know, uh, let me make an appointment for him." So, with him. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, uh, I I made this a, you know, I got got in to see him, and uh, he was like. Okay, so what we're gonna do is get we'll get you a CETA slot. Uh, now, what a CETA slot was back then? They had government money for poor neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and so they would uh, give enough money to churches and uh, teen centers and community centers to give people in the poor neighborhood jobs, mm-hmm. and the job would last like three months, you know. And um, so. I was like, okay, at the CETA slot, then that's, you know, um, that'd be like three months of work, you know? So I go, okay, fine, you know? So, um, but I I live with my in-laws in a nicer part of San Gabriel. And um, so I couldn't use that address. You had to have an address in a poor Mm -hmm. neighborhood. So he's going, okay, well, we'll we'll have you use this address. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Uh, what what address? And he goes, it's an address in East LA. And I was like, you want me to lie, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you know, you, you tell me tattooing's a sin. I had to quit. But I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. Yeah. But I do see one of the Ten Commandments saying, "Thou shalt not lie." Right. And you want me to lie to the government? Yeah. You know to, and you know, and I told him that, and we argued about it. And I just, I just had trouble with that. Yeah. And um, and um. Uh, uh, that with all the other things I just I walked away from it and so tell me about when you got sober it was ultimately Beit Shuva where you got sober right the ultimate yeah the so 11 years back ago to your mother's Jewish roots exactly so yeah. so Beit Shuva is a rehab here in LA run by a rabbi and his wife correct right. so just to, to be clear all this stuff with Victory Outreach and Sonny Argonzoni and all that stuff was 1980 yeah wow okay let's fast forward <laughs> yeah so <laughs> so anyways i did all that thing with tattoo i went back to tattooing yeah yeah and da 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 and uh seen it become the great thing that it is today but uh so yeah i i um i ended up my son passed away i'm sorry so and he was 16 at the time and he was actually murdered in a gang a gang mm-hmm. shooting he, I think he was trying to follow my footsteps. But anyways, mm-hmm. just um, over the years, I've always chipped here mm-hmm. and there, you know, like did it, got high mm-hmm. once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, on heroin. So, um, and is that bothering the... No, it's not bothering okay. me. Okay. No. So, <clears throat> so anyways, uh, after he passed away, I got uh, completely strung out. And yeah. I was like, I became like a New York dope fiend. Mm. You know, what does I, that mean? Uh, we back in the day, uh, the stereotypical New York dolphin is somebody that would just keep using until they were completely knotted out on the street. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, and it's funny because a couple guys from New York that I use with, they would always go too far. Yeah, okay. You the know? LA guys held it together a little bit more. You That's got, the way I looked knew, at it. Knew how to, knew how yeah, to yeah. be we'd heroin get addicts hot. in control. Yeah, and stay in control. 
So, and the media and different things like that, you know, um, cartoons always portrayed, you know, like New York drug addicts as like excessive. You yeah. Know? So anyways, so um, I became like a New York dolphin. Right, right. <laughs> and um, anyways, and I ended up getting arrested and going back to prison. And then I got out. I, I st- you know, Mark Mahoney kept my job at Shamrock. I uh, got out of prison, went back to work, and went right back to the same thing. And I got arrested again, and this time with a parole violation. So I was going to go back to prison. And uh, one of Mark Mahoney's good friends, Andrew Wasser, he was a <clears throat> head therapist at um, at Beit Shuva. And, um, and he had told Mark, you know, Freddie's mother's Jewish, you know, like, um, they, they'll take him in over there at Beit Shuva, you know, because mm-hmm. even though my mother died when I was really young, you know, I didn't really know her or practice. But anyways, um, I ended up, you know, because I painted murals in the county jail mm-hmm. on the walls, um, they gave me a recommendation. So the judge decided instead of sending him back to prison, We'll let him go into a rehab. And at that time, I was ready. Yeah. I was really ready. I I never would have saw myself going in. You'd never get me to go into a rehab. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. On my own. So I went because the court sent me. But I was really serious about it. So I made a commitment to do everything they asked. Yeah. So I went in there. It's a great program. It's like a three-pronged program. They have... Uh, 12-step psychotherapy and Judaism. Mm-hmm. So, and I I did really, really good. And did you tap into that spiritual awakening that had happened those yes, years I before? Yes, I did. Is that, is that how, what you think? I, I think that spiritual over? awakening that happened years before, uh, thank, you know, thankfully for the 12 steps, it, it made a clear path for, for me. Yeah. And, and um and one one that um you know revived that yeah. experience yeah that i had in a in a real way and so i have a great walk with uh god today uh one where i don't look around me at what other people are doing i just focus on on what i'm doing you know and it's my relationship you know i don't have some church tell me you got to do this and this and that you know what do you do to maintain it do you pray do you i pray mm-hmm. i pray and i meditate mm-hmm. and uh and i you know i try to practice uh the steps you know i i try to do the right thing now not a lot it's safe to say that not a lot of guys who come from your background end up in this position 11 years sober what do you think is different about you. Why do you think that's happened to you? I don't. You know, I. I think a lot of guys like me do end up. Yes, I mean this is this is the thing I get into where people go, well, nobody stays sober. Nay, it's like, well, really, a hundred percent of the people I know do. But if you look at the wide percentage, right. yes. So I mean, guys like me, in the mold I was cut from, <laughs> yeah, are. Either gonna die young, yeah, um, or go to prison, or 
or change your life and live. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I'm I'm that one. You're the, and of our, the three. You got the of the three. One. I'm in that one, right? And I knew I do know a lot of other people that have uh, gone through similar experiences. Even I also know I get letters all the time from guys in prison that have done it in there that are doing it in there. They even have this thing. I don't know if you heard of it. Criminal and Gangsters Anonymous. No. That's amazing. You're so, kidding. And so, okay, and their meetings and everything. Yeah, yeah, and they have their own uh, their own steps, their own literature. Wow. And the, their their thing is, you know, um, that they're addicted to the game. Yeah. The criminal game. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of people that get into drugs because they like the game. Yeah. Dealing and stealing and all that stuff, you know. So, and actually, that's where I met Steve Jones, the uh, my co-author. Yes, sorry, let's get it. So what made you decide to write a book? This podcast is focusing increasingly on creativity and authors and writing books and that kind of oh, thing. Okay. So what made you, he came to you and said, I want to tell well, your story. No, no, actually, um, I had been thinking about it mm -hmm. because uh, Ed Hardy had, had written his book and it was great. And I was thinking, you know, I, I, I have a lot more to talk about in a book than just tattooing, just yeah. the tattoo experience. So I'd already thought about it myself, but I don't have the skills to write a book, you know, like Ed Hardy has those skills, you know. So um, anyways, um, I, I went to, I was invited to go to uh, one of these Criminal Gangsters Anonymous meetings. Mm -hmm. So they love to have me talk because- Yeah, yeah. Even though I'm an AA guy, yeah, you know, but still, you know, it's, it's all rele relevant, you know. So I went and spoke there and I gave my story. Well, in the audience was uh, this girl who's a good friend of mine. And keep going. And um, her grandmother was like this <clears throat> famous British mobster lady. Okay. You know, and. And Steve Jones was uh, this author. Steve Jones, he's actually a screenwriter, was and doing he's research. Not Steve Jones from uh, no, the, it's not. The Sex Pistols. not yeah, Jonesy. people are always telling me, dude, you did a book with Jonesy. <laughs> who, who? He just had his book. Come I out. know. He just had yeah. his own book come out. He's a friend of mine, but yeah. it's not. It's not that Steve Jones. So, yeah. anyways, I guess in uh, in London, uh, Steve Jones is a popular name. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so, anyways. Um, so he was doing research for a book he was doing on this girl's grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so, but she told him, hey, you got to come to this meeting and hear this guy speak. So she came and uh, they, she brought him and uh, he heard me speak. And then they approached me after her and we talked and she's a good friend of mine. So we all went out to eat and he told me about the book that he was uh, doing research on. And then I started telling him about how, what I felt. Yeah about doing a book you know and he's he just listened he's like yeah yeah it's interesting well he said that uh he had to drive to san francisco the next day so as he was driving he thought he was thinking about what we talked about and everything but he said it just hit him like you know what i gotta do this book yeah and uh and so he dropped that project and he turned around and he came back to L.A. Nice. So dramatic. Yeah. So what's it like? You know, a lot of people email me um, 
because I help writers put their, you know, people in recovery, write their stories. I coach them through the process. What's the experience like of putting your story out there in a book? Well, it was a lot of a lot of work. Yeah. And Steve, Steve is also a recovered heroin addict. Yeah. You know, so we we both had that in common. And um, uh, apart from that, you know, he's he lives in uh, in Austria, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, and he's from London, you know. Mm -hmm. So. So we had to learn to communicate together. Yeah. So that he could understand what it was I was talking about. So he would make trips. It took us six years to put this book together. Wow. But uh, so three of those years were just in interviews and um, and tours and experiencing experience things. Mm-hmm. So he'd come over here and I'd take him to the different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I'd take him to meet the homeboys, take him into the worst parts of town. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends that are sheriffs. They would take him on ride-alongs in the bad neighborhoods. Uh, he got tours of the jails and prisons. He actually saw what cell I was in. Uh, you know, so, and he's a really intelligent guy, and he was able to pick up on all this. Yeah. Uh, and along with the interviews, so it took a while to put together. And then what's it like having it out there? So far, it's, it's going really good. When did it and come out? Uh, last year. Uh-huh. So it's going good. It's mostly the tattoo community, people that, that buy it. So whenever, like, uh, you know, we had uh, 100 of them in Hawaii at this tattoo show. Mm-hmm. So they all sell out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tattoo people are buying it up. Yeah. But <clears throat> um, because there's so much in there about my recovery and the program, I want to somehow get people you know, in that life, get recovery people onto it. Yeah, well, that's what we're doing here. But also, don't you think that's nice that your people are buying it because they're interested in tattoos? So they're not like, um, they're not interested necessarily in a recovery memoir, but they're getting that. It's like you're tricking them yes, into learning. They yes. think they're learning about tattoo life and they're learning about recovery life. Right. And I have, I have a, a story to share about that. So there's these tattoo artists from, from, uh, from Dallas, and uh, they also have a band. <clears throat> so they come out once in a while to to L.A. and play at the Roxy and the Whiskey and all this. Mm-hmm. So when they come, they come and get tattooed by me, you know. They're really cool guys, and they always want me to go to Dallas and visit their tattoo shop and stuff. So anyways, um, so they came out, and um, just one of the guys, and... And um, I gave him a book, you know, and I signed it. And so then about three days later, he called me and he was crying. Yep. He's like, dude, man, your book, your book, man, it saved my life and this and that. And so apparently what happened was after I gave him the book, they did did their show and um, their guitar guy uh, overdosed on heroin. And nearly died and was in the hospital. And it caused this, this drama, but they were all on heroin, you know. But seeing that kind of woke him up. And then he said he was thumbing through my book. And and then he started reading it. Yeah. And then he, he read the whole book in two days. Yeah. You know? So, you know, if you could reach one person. 
practice. Well, yeah. And um, I actually have a friend of mine that I want to hook you up with who is a recovery advocate who does tons of work in prisons. And I think you guys could connect and spread the message a lot. Um, so we, we'll, we'll start wrapping up. Okay. Um, can, yeah. Because of parking. This is Los Angeles. <laughs> people got to get that. Um, if people want to find out more about you, you don't have a website or anything, do you? Uh, I don't know. Do I... I I think uh, Steve did. Is there a is there I think a there may Freddy be a Freddy Okay, well we're gonna we'll make sure before. But but if not, um, they should definitely check check out my Instagram. Check out the Instagram. It's Freddy, F R E D D Y, underscore Negretti, N E G R E T E. Um, uh, I'm on the Shamrock Social. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's Shamrock Social Club website. And go get the book. They should just get it on Amazon. Get it on Amazon. Smile, not cry later. And can we just, are you, is it too inappropriate for me to say, like, who are some of the famous people you've tattooed? Or do you not even answer that question? Because you've tattooed everybody. Yeah, I've tattooed a lot of, a lot of people. It's, um, you know, it's hard to even think. I know. It's terrible for me to put you on the spot. I, I can go, I can go, um. But I know them all too because, I, you know, um, I used to do. I was like the first tattoo artist that was allowed to work on Hollywood pictures. So uh, myself and a makeup artist, we created this uh, this method of doing temporary tattoos for actors. Really? Yeah. So I did like over thirty feature films. You know, like uh, one that is recognizable is uh, Blade, the Blade trilogy. Oh yeah. You know, all the tattoos on Wesley Snipes, those are all mine. But movies like Con Air, Blood In, Blood Out, um, I just thought of Austin good- Powers, so many movies I would come in and, and so I got to meet so many people, directors and, you know, um, actors, and I tattooed so many of them. And right now, if somebody wants to go get tattooed by you, can they? Can yes. They just, they, where would they go? They would call Shamrock Tattoo. Okay. And just make an appointment with Freddie. I've got a marketing idea for you. Okay. Nobody can be tattooed until they buy your book. What do you <laughs> think of that? I have books for sale there too. Okay, but I'm going to establish thing where you have to buy the book if you want a tattoo. Sure. Okay. You and bring your book first. with you and I'll sign it. Okay. Well, Freddie, Almost everybody I tattoo now. Has read it. Well, they bring the book in for me to sign. Okay. Well, you, you know, if you guys want to get tattooed by Freddie, you know what you got to do. Freddie, thank you so thank much you. for doing this. You guys have been listening to Recover Girl. Thank you. I'll see you next time.